Okay, good afternoon, everyone. I think we're going to make a start. It's just past 4.30. Um, I'm Dr. Thomas Smith. I'm from the Department of Geography and Environment here at the LSE, and I'll be chairing today's uh, discussion on youthquake. Uh, I'm just going to give you an outline about what's going to happen over the next 75 minutes. I'm going to introduce the speakers one by one, and they're going to talk to you a little bit about who they are and what they do uh, when it comes to um, activism. We're then going to get on to the interactive part of the panel discussion, which I'm sure that's why you're all here, because this is the part of the afternoon that, where you will be participating. What this will involve is each one of our panelists is going to introduce a scenario that requires some form of activism, and they'll be soliciting ideas from you on the floor about how you might organize a response to any their particular issues that they are raising. So that will be the second half an hour of, of today's uh, panel. And then finally, we'll finish with a general kind of questions and answers session uh, with our speakers. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our first speaker. Uh, Noga Levy Rappaport is an 18-year-old climate activist, public speaker, and organizer of the UK climate strikes at the UK Student Climate Network. On the 15th of February 2019, she led London's first climate strike march before joining the UK Student Climate Network as a volunteer and began organizing around the Green New Deal with uh, GND UK. Since February, uh, this 18-year-old has spoken at numerous panels, events, strikes and protests around the UK and across Europe, with key speeches at the Children's Media Conference and the UN's International Maritime Organization. In October 2019, she was selected by the Evening Standard as one of London's most influential people of 2019 as part of their annual Progress 1000 list. So over to you. Thanks. Um, Hi, so, um, yeah, I'm Noga, I'm 18, um, and for the past year I've been involved in putting together the climate strikes um, across the UK and coordinating them internationally. Um, and I would say that's kind of one of the greatest surges, more public surges, I think, of kind of mass youth activism that we've seen uh, over the past decade, at least. You know, we kicked off this decade with student rights, and I think it's very fitting that we're ending them with uh, student strikes as well. Um, how that's kind of come about has been very much a coalition of different kind of grassroots organizations and groups across the country of young people recognizing the very real threat and danger of climate change and looking for more than just action but a kind of cohesive uh, solution. Um, one that has been presented in the fore uh, beforehand, kind of the Green New Deal that's been developed since early 2008 and is uh, very much still in the play now and you probably will have heard about it uh, since it's kind of popularization by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders in the US um, and is very much being brought to the kind of the forefront of the national conversation around the environment uh, in the UK as well. And for us as climate strikers the Green New Deal is so important because it's so directly tied to how we've run our activism. Uh, kind of in, in basic socio-political theory, the, the whole idea of strikes is to you know, withdraw from the workforce, withdraw from schools and put a stop to the economy for as much as possible. Uh, as young people, of course, the education system is much more difficult to actively disrupt than, uh, of course, the infamous uh, coal miner strikes, which I think are perhaps what most people think about when they hear the word strike, particularly young people. Um, and the Green New Deal represents the polar opposite of that. It says to us, this is the, the climate crisis is an issue that was brought about because of uh, social and environmental injustice. Those two are one and the same. 
Uh, this is an issue that was caused by a system that prioritizes expansive wealth and perpetual growth rather than sustainable localized uh, communities and the importance of well-being as a uh, as more significant value than capital. Um, in that response, in our response through climate strikes, we've said we want a solution that fundamentally reforms and transforms the economic and social system we're living in. We recognize not just its faults, but its inherent flaws that have caused the climate crisis in the first place, that have spent decades, centuries even causing the climate crisis. And in order to reform that economic system, we first have to disrupt it to the point where it is no longer governable, to the point where streets are so filled with screaming kids that there is no choice other than to listen to those demands. This is not a polite way of asking. This is, without a doubt, uh, a very blunt demand um, that we have kind of been putting forward over the past year. Uh, in this idea of kind of youth climate activism, uh, which are probably kind of words that you'll have seen thrown around quite a lot over the past year, particularly following uh, kind of Greta Thunberg's uh, population of, of climate strikes and that kind of expansion all over the world, uh, we get this idea that actually we are moving away from individual actions, moving away towards kind of full-blown campaigning. Um, and we reject the idea that the only way in which we can make a difference, the only way we can be active around the environment is to limit our own personal carbon emissions, but rather to force fundamental change uh, on the rest of uh, the country through forcing the government to agree to a set of political demands. And these are kind of the principles that underlie every form of strike action. Um, obviously, right now, you'll have also seen kind of the ongoing UCU strikes, and these are all very similar. Um, and I apologise if this feels like I'm dumbing it down a bit, but what's very important in, in this kind of acknowledgement of activism, acknowledgement of youth activism in particular, is that when young people get active, they're they're treated not as celebrities, but as people who have suddenly got this, this great gift of intelligence and have thought of something incredible. These amazing young people are doing amazing things, right? That's how you see it everywhere. But for so many young people, this idea of, of what activism campaigning looks like is very new and very alien, and has not really been a part of our life, particularly strikes since uh, very draconian kind of anti-trade union laws were introduced over the past few decades. Um, and so it's so important that actually when we talk about campaigning, we really go back to the root of why we take in each action. And that's uh, what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the day, especially when we come to the scenario. But I think that's all uh, from me. Um, so I'll pass on. OK, thank you very much, Noga. Uh, on to our second panellist. Um, Lola uh, Feokun is an 18-year-old environmental activist and politics student here at the LSE. She's heavily involved in the UK Student Climate Network, the grassroots organization which hosts the youth climate strikes in the UK. Her work here is focused on the decolonization of the environmental movement and promotion of the Green New Deal. She is a Labour Party volunteer, organizing as a Havering and Dagenham Young Labour's campaigns and membership officer, and also as the LSE Student Union Labour Society's uh, Black and Asian Minorities, sorry, uh, BME, BAME officer. Over to you, Lola. Thank you. Um, thanks. So I'm just going to, I guess, run through kind of my campaigning journey um, and where I started with campaigning a few years ago and where I'm at now. Um, so I started campaigning, I guess, when I joined the Labour Party. Um, 
right after um, the 2015 election, I think. Um, so that's when I started, started cam campaigning in my local area. And at that point, campaigning meant to me um, canvassing, knocking on doors, being seen as someone who could, um, you know, uh, get on the phones and kind of be like the foot soldier of the movement or whatever, not really um, making decisions or um, really, I guess, engaging in the organisation side of things, but just being someone who could, um, I guess, deliver on the doorstep the messages that I was supposed to deliver and that I was asked to deliver using a script and um, a sort of call list, whatever. Um, it was only a year ago when I joined uh, the UK Student Climate Network that I started to look at, um, I guess, campaigning outside of electoralism and campaigning where young people were, I guess, at the forefront and actually building their own campaigns. So that was when um, I got involved in climate strikes and when I got involved in the Green New Deal and thinking about these kind of large-scale um, movements that I could be a part of, which weren't just about... Um, where I could do more than just knock on doors, where I could actually use my own ideas and think through things. Um, so by this time, I'd become the under-19s officer for my local aid party. I'd become um, the campaign's membership officer of my local party, but I kind of hadn't really done any full-fledged campaigns. Um, and being part of the climate movement really gave me an opportunity to kind of um, have my voice heard and input in a way which it hadn't been before. So moving from there, I joined LSC a few months ago, and that was when I got involved in the Justice for Cleaners campaign here. Um, and uh, that's kind of seen me really have, be able to have an active say in creating a campaign which is going to have um, an impact of the lives of people that work in the building where I live, in the, um, the buildings where I live and the buildings where I work. And knowing that I can have um, a direct impact that close to home on people who I see every single day um, has been really important to me. And being able to build a campaign here um, with so many other people and building off of the work which has already been done here over the last couple of years has been so incredible. Um, and I'm also in the process of starting a campaign around um, borders here um, at LSE as part of my role as LSE's um, Labour Society's um, Black and Minority Ethnic Officer. And so that's seen me is trying to find out what um, LSE's relationship with is, with is with the Home Office and the way that they engage with um, the hostile environment policies which have been brought in in the UK over the last couple of years. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm at now um, in my journey. And I guess that it's been really fulfilling for me to go from just being a foot soldier to being someone who can, um, I guess, be at the forefront of a collaborative and... Um, decentralised um, and ho more horizontal movement for justice. So, thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'll introduce our third and final panellist. Um, this is Daniel Laws. Uh, Daniel is, an eight, is the 18-year-old founder and CEO of Youth Politics UK, a national organisation dedicated to encouraging political engagement among young people. The organization provides free and non-partisan campaigning sessions to help youth in deprived areas develop the skills to enact positive change. He has led the organization to reach over 14,000 young people by embarking on grassroots initiatives like campaign workshops, like you'll be taking part in, I guess, in, the, in a few minutes' time, talks in school assemblies and collaborations with youth centers with over 55 volunteers working with the organization. He is also an ambassador of HRH I Will campaign, hashtag, and an active campaigner for increased funding to youth mental health services. 
Thank you. Over to you, Daniel. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for coming today on a Saturday afternoon. It's absolutely amazing to see you all here. Um, so when I look back, I look at three key catalysts for why I got engaged. Um, first of them was, was very young. I was 12 years old, um, and I went on a school trip to Parliament. I didn't even know what Parliament was, to be honest. I didn't have a clue what it did. But something really stuck with me. I went, and I, we were talking to our MP at the time, and another MP came in the room. Again, I didn't know what an MP was. And... He came in and he started talking and he wouldn't stop talking and he started talking about austerity measures. Now I did know what that was because my mum works as a teacher and my dad works in the NHS so I've heard my entire life these ideas, you know, public service um, and also the cuts to public services and what was really interesting was that he really dispelled the impacts. Um, and I started to, I, I picked him up on it, I didn't know much but I knew what my parents had told me. Most of those were cuss words so I didn't use that. Um, and I said, excuse me, you know, I, I think you're wrong. And he said two things. He said, first of all, and this really gets me going, he says, oh, you've got a northern accent. Second thing, you're also really young. Okay? Those are the two things he identified. And I don't know what it was, but that really stuck with me. Now, the second catalyst was when I was 14 years old. And it was just after the general election. Now, once again, my parents are both work in public service and I knew that the election result in 2015 was not something which I wanted. Uh, my parents were pretty upset about it and so was I. Um, so I decided to do something about it. I was like Lola, um, I decided to join the Labour Party and it was a Saturday morning and it was pouring down. This was the weekend after we'd lost. Morale was so low. There was a campaigning session going on, right? Normally big, they, they attract big numbers. Four people turned up. This is my, I was only 14 years old. Four people turned up outside our local library. Right? <laughs> Two local councillors, me as a 14-year-old. And then suddenly someone else walked through. through. Um, and I didn't know who he was, but there was, you could just tell there was an aura about him. Um, it turned out he was the great late Sir Gerald Kaufman, um, the father of the house at the time. And um, I said, Sir Gerald, this isn't even your constituency. Why are you here? And he said, and I'll never forget this, he said, lad, I was bored. And so he came all the way to our constituency. It was not too far. It was a Manchester constituency to come and campaign. Um, and we thought, okay, we're going to split up. We're going to split two and two. And he said, um, I'm going to take the lad. I'm going to take the lad. And we spent four hours that afternoon, and he taught me the ropes on how to campaign. So I think it's, you know, it's something I'm so proud of is, you know, I was very lucky that I, I always, my first experience of campaigning was by one of the greatest, you know, the UK's ever had to offer. Um, and then the third catalyst, and that was the Brexit referendum. Now, again, I don't, I, when I was younger, I didn't get too party political at times, but I knew that the EU referendum was something different. You know, that represented something on a larger scale, that represented generational divides, that represented something which, you know, we, the, it was something against the values that we as a generation hold dear. You know, 80% of young people did not want it. And that really stuck. Um, on the doorstep, I was hearing things which were just completely contradicting, uh, contradicted the very reasons why people wanted to leave. There was just misinformation and everything about it really stuck with me. But the most important thing was it encapsulated something larger. You know, young people didn't go out and vote. We're playing up, you know, simple. We didn't go out and vote. Um, they weren't engaged enough. Um, and I was frustrated at that, not necessarily at the result of the referendum, but the fact that it represented that we weren't getting involved and that politicians weren't making an effort to get us involved. And that's why I wanted to do something about it. So I gathered up 10 other young people from the Manchester region who were engaged in public speaking, who I'd met at public speaking competitions, at Modern United Nations conferences. I didn't have many resources at my disposal, but what I could do was mobilise a team. 
So I got 10 young people from Manchester together. And again, this is where I was really lucky. They were strong. You know, we as a collective, we had some, you know, pretty good talents amongst us. We had public speakers. We had people who could, you know, organize events. But again, remember, this is only, what are we, 16-year-olds, right? We, we had 10 16-year-olds. And so what we decided to do was go into schools. Went into schools, we, we decided, you know what, we can do this on a grassroots scale. What's more engaging? Is it a, you know, a, a, a politician in a three-piece suit going into schools, telling them why they need to get involved in politics when they don't look like them, sound like them, or act like them? Whereas if you've got 16-year-olds going in to talk to 16-year-olds, that's pretty powerful stuff. So we had 10 young people. We went in, and over the course of those, that year and a half, right, we'd, in, we'd gone around, we calculated around 14,000 young people in the Northwest region. That's on a budget of nothing. And then two things happened then. We decided to organize a conference, right? Now, if any one of you have organized a conference, you know how tough it is, okay? Again, we probably had this time about, a we had about 20 people on our team, um, and we had the ambitious target of reaching about 500 young people, okay? And so what we did is we pinged emails left, right, and center. Um, it came a week before the conference, and we didn't have a headline speaker. And then suddenly, we got two people sign up. Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester, came along, and this was just after the leadership election, so maybe you had some spare time. Um, and then also, we had Alistair Campbell turn up. Now, <laughs> Alistair Campbell. <laughs> no, now what I, you know, you can say what you want about those two people, but what I really respected was the fact that they were willing to come to an organisation which has only been running for a year and a half, two years, on a budget of lit genuinely nothing you know we had maybe one sponsor we held it in a school one of our own schools um and then something else happened it started snowing the day before in a march in the middle of march it started snowing um on the friday night before and we thought no one's going to turn up on saturday morning at 9 a.m we were really we were just all stood at the doors 500 young people turned up through the doors to debate politics on a saturday snowy day I mean, that shows something in itself, surely. Surely that shows something. So we thought, okay, let's take this further. Right, we've got 20 young people. We've used the resources that we have at our own disposal. Let's try and take this further, you know. So what we did was we went and we tried to find some financial resources. We, we pitched and we got it. We got, we got the resources. Um, so what, you know, the message there is that, you know, we, we'll talk about it later, but we literally had nothing. And we were able to mobilize a really good team and get where we were. And it's just gone from step to step. We now have members, we are, now we have over 75 members across the country now um, in Manchester, Edinburgh, and London. Uh, we're completely youth led, which is something I'm really proud of. In our constitution, it says every opportunity that we have will be given to a young person. Now, we do respect the fact that we will need adult help. We do have adult advisors, which is um, really, you know, we're, we're so grateful for. But it's led to opportunities that I just couldn't dream of. You know, I was asked to, to meet Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, to discuss the impact of, of Brexit on young people, which is an interesting conversation. Um, also talked about education reforms with her. Um, but also stuff like speaking at the Children's Media Conference with Nogue, which is where we, we met, um, organising conferences, writing for national papers. It's the sort of thing where, from someone who, just a lad from Manchester, who had no political contacts whatsoever, you know, literally none. I think it shows that you really can start from a base of nothing. You know, if you have a decent team, you can get somewhere. But never underestimate the power of an individual as well. Because we always talk about grassroots movements and you can't get anywhere without a team. You really can't. 
But if you've got an idea, you know, you can take it far. I remember the, the one piece of advice I'll leave with you is that when I was very fortunate enough to win Princess Diana Legacy Award, which was one in 20, one out of tw- yeah, it was 20 young people from across the world. Got it. it was just insane. Like it was, I, the imposter syndrome was massive going around there and hearing what everyone else had done. It was like, I built like 20 schools in Nigeria and I'm there going, I'm just from Manchester. You know, I've just done a few stuff up there. Um, and, but Elizabeth Nyamado, I think her, that was her name. She was the executive director of UN Women. Um, I mentioned that. I mentioned that I, I, I was feeling a bit out of place. And she it was at a dinner table. And she looked across the table and she, she, she leaned forward and she said, Daniel, there was one Barack Obama. There was one Nelson Mandela. And there's one you. And I just went, boom. My whole face just changed. And she, but I knew what she meant. She wasn't talking about me you know, as a person. She's talking about the power of an individual. She's saying that if you put your mind to it, you know, if you really do believe in something like No Good Does, like Lola does, and you invest all your time in it, and you really fight for it, you have the drive. You know, one of my other sayings is be cheeky. That's one of the best things you can do. We had a budget of nothing, but, you know, I'd shake people's hands and go, come on, just give us this room for free. Just give us this venue for free, <laughs> right? If you do that, you, you could get far. Um, so, yeah, there's one Obama... One Greta Thunberg, you know, that's one you. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, great, my, my notes are out of date. That, that's how quickly your organisation is evolving. Um, thanks for exposing that. And you clearly learned something else from that NP that you, you've learned to talk as well. Um, I just want to clarify one thing before we move on to the interactive section of the discussion. Maybe, um, Noga or Lola, you could just clarify what you mean by the Green New Deal, because uh, you both mentioned it quite a bit. And uh, just maybe just very briefly explain that to the audience. Do you want to take this one? Sure. So uh, the Green New Deal is um, essentially a set of of policies and it's one of the key proposals of um, the climate strike movement in the UK and in some other climate strike movement across across the world. Um, And what it says is that um, we can't treat the climate as a single issue. We need to treat climate as a social issue, as an issue which has been caused by the deep inequality in our society and by um, the decisions of so many people across the world and of our entire system to prioritise profit above the interests of people. And so I guess I would just describe the Green New Deal as trying to really see people first and for people to come first and for equality and justice to come first and for understanding that climate isn't something you can fix with um, just wind turbines or just electric cars. It has to come from a place of really fundamentally fundamentally rethinking the way that we do politics and the way that we... um, structure our society today so that's what the green new deal means okay thanks that's great um i think we shall move straight on to the interactive section i've got loads of questions but i will not be selfish and i think we should uh begin with the scenarios i don't know who would like to go first i'm happy to go first great um okay so uh okay firstly just to kind of uh, introduce i'm gonna give you a scenario and then we're gonna find a way to tackle it Um, And I'm going to ask you loads of questions, and you are hopefully going to have some answers, some ideas, some suggestions. So, okay, so cast your minds back to the election, um, however you felt around that. But this is during the election period, okay? There's three, four weeks to go, lots of hustings are going on. This is very much the Brexit election. You know that's what people are going to be talking about. Uh, You know that that's 
going to be kind of the questions that dominate every single hustings in your local area. And you know that uh, the candidates for your constituency, neither of them, well, none of them really value uh, kind of the ecological emergency in the way that you really want. The, this hustings is, a, is next week. Um, how are you going to draw attention to the climate crisis at this hustings? You, can't, you can ask a question, sure, but it will be wiped out. How do you make a... How do you make quite a big point? How do you make it into a newspaper? How do you get someone to write an article that this constituency, people of this constituency, seem to value the climate crisis and yet these candidates haven't properly been referring to it? What are you going to do? They're on a stage. They're at your local town hall. Uh, it's pretty packed, about 50 or 60 people, and you know this is happening next week. You've tried to get in touch with the candidates already to see if they'll talk about the climate crisis, but they haven't really talked about anything. What are you going to do? Before, lots of information, I know. So let's ask some key questions. If you, what kind of actions can you do at a town hall? Who are you going to reach? You're going to reach members of your constituency. You, if it's a big enough action, you're going to reach some local media, possibly. Um, you're definitely going to reach these candidates, and they're the people who, who are standing in your community, right? They're the people whose minds need changing. They're the people who you need to... Smash. Yes, smash yeah. a, yeah, a word in front of. Sandra, the anti-Brexit activist, basically <laughs> here that you were trying to get young, young people involved. There's too many older people like me doing that, and we, we really need young people there. Thank you. Um, uh, I would obviously try and make it very relevant locally, maybe have picked up some local issues that, that do pertain to environmental issues, whether it's pollution or green spaces, um, and try and have a very local statistics about that, maybe get a petition that I can bring there and have it had been signed in advance to say, look, this many people in the constituency really care about these issues, what are you going to do about it? And then, of course, there's the stunts that you guys have been brilliant at, um, which I guess has its pros and cons, but it cuts through. So, obviously, you, you guys are brilliant at the stunts. Um, so, yeah, those are two or three things. Great. So, we've got some, so, okay. so, we've got some ideas for possibly stunts, which I'm personally a big fan of. Um, and uh, possibly a petition. Let's, yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> uh, hi. Um, maybe as you work with schools and so on, you could get, um, I mean, children are, are now like little activists, aren't they? They're quite aware of some of the planet issues. And I mean, something like child labor, which is involved with a lot of the brand labels, you know, that could, you could have a sort of brand labels and how they produce their, you know, the, the supply chain and how the goods actually get to us, you know, the final product, but we can see, you know, the, what's behind it, and something like that, which makes us more aware of, you know, how the goods um, are presented, how it's actually the source, you know what I mean? So that can sort of be a, like a kind of journey thing, and then you could actually show how it's promoted in this country so that children are more aware about, you know, the products, um, do you know what I mean? And the effect it's having on the planet, um, also, like the fast food, um, the fast food industry, for example, you know, McDonald's and all the fast food and the impact it's having in terms of the amount of rubbish, for example, that is produced. You know, so if it's kind of very real to what they actually 
do, you know, um, how they spend their money or how the parents spend their money, then it's something that they can relate to, you know, and it makes them more aware and they can challenge, you know, maybe go to parliament, you know, and challenge the government about um, the, the industry, you know, because, I mean, they do focus on the parents and say, well, you know, we can make those choices, but unless the industry... You know, something's on about the actual industry where the goods are being produced. Nothing really is going to be different, is it? Absolutely. Okay, so we've got these guys. Unfortunately, we are, we're a group of four constituents. Uh, we're unlikely to make it into Parliament. But we do want to say these things. We want to say, okay, you're our candidates and you're going to Parliament. And you've got this hustings. How are we going to get that point across? The industry itself needs to change. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't really pull a stunt or anything like that but what i would do is that i know i'd pick up on a few environmental issues that i know people in my constituency would care about so for example if litter picking isn't happening properly or air pollution or an issue like that and i'd put it all into a leaflet and like probably word it very powerfully say like they don't care about us and come a bit early to like the meeting or whatever hand those leaflets out make it very awkward for um those politicians whilst they're standing there and if i ask a question i know a few people would have read the leaflet and back it up and say yeah what are you doing so that's that's just something that i do personally in that i'd personally i'd call that a bit of a stunt i like that (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh do you have a point yeah she basically said a lot of what I was going to say, but um, I was going to say um, if the candidate or the mayor or whoever it is is up there, just make them answer a, a yes or no question about um, mm. the issues in the constituency because if they say no, it's just going to be um, awkward. You'd be surprised how good politicians are at avoiding yes or no questions. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, put them on the spot. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Hi, on a stunt, stunt style point, you think we can, I mean, it sounds really sad, but we can take a leaf out of the right-wing book of how they publicize things. You know, you go up to, go up to your politician, um, whoever you want to target, have some of your mates filming it, and just keep asking the question and keep having them say, I don't want to answer this, I don't want to answer this, and you just kind of flood social media with it. You know, it's kind of sad that we have to do that, but... We gotta, what we, you got to do what you got to do. Mm. In America, the Sunrise Movement, who, have, who are the youth kind of group over there, have really popularized climate strikes, the Green New Deal, uh, use that tactic, which is called uh, bird dogging quite a lot. And all over there... Bird dogging, which is a terrible name for it, um, but is uh, so yeah, it's all over their social media, um, especially they've, as they've tried to get um, Democratic candidates to sign up to their Green New Deal pledges. Okay, so kind of those two so we've got what we want to talk about which is like the changing of industries we want candidates to sign up to that and we've got this idea of holding politicians to account we want some strongly worded leaflets we want people who are coming to this to know as well and we want to really put them on the spot okay before we turn that into a cohesive uh, plan does anyone have any more points before we kind of put that together yeah wait just wait for the microphone so we can all hear you I was thinking that we could, even if there's only a few of you, you could bring in posters or banners and wait to be able to ask a question. And as you ask, 
about well, what are you going to do about the climate and this issue, you raise the banners. You said there would only be 50 or 60 people there. People will turn towards you as you ask the question and they will see the banners and think about it. Can we get a round of applause? <laughs> this is very... That, for me personally, that's the perfect answer. Um, and I would say that, okay, this is our hustings. Here are our four candidates. You are lovely uh, constituents and us the terrible candidates. Um, so... <laughs> We've got so far, we've got this team of five or six people who have all talked so far. Prior to this event, you've got together. You've printed out about 70, 80 leaflets. You don't know how many people are going to turn up. Very strongly worded with kind of facts and the history of each candidate on uh, their campaigning so far. Maybe they've already been an MP or, or how they've communicated with local schools about uh, kind of dairy and meat industries and kind of the systemic connection to that to uh, the ecological crisis um, as the candidates have you've already been in this town hall you've stuck a leaflet to every single seat you've probably chucked several all over the stage already maybe they slip maybe they don't I don't really care um, and then as these candidates have come in You've, you know, stopped them uh, at the door and you said, just before we go in, could I just talk to you quickly? Your mate's got a phone out. You just hit them with some fast questions that you know the moderator will probably not let you ask later. Quite hard to hear questions. Hang on. Uh, but in 2016, actually, you voted uh, against kind of regulating uh, fossil fuel companies in Parliament. Why did you do that? Would you do that again today? Um, what is your climate solution if we don't have a chance to talk about it later? And you keep pushing for that. As a general rule, those candidates have been quite bad and they've kind of quickly excused themselves and you haven't been able to keep them for very long. Gets to the uh, Q&A part of the hustings. You've, everyone's been looking at this leaflet already, so you know there's a bit of a, it's been a bit of a mood change in the room. Probably some people have asked about climate already. Um, and then young man over there, uh, who is our nominated speaker from the group, uh, stands up during the Q&A and says... None of you have had a strong record on the climate crisis. Will you commit to our uh, local Green New Deal? Um, or will you refuse to take action on climate change whilst you're in Parliament? And will you continue campaigning um, even, if you aren't, uh, even if you don't win uh, in this constituency? As this young man says so, um, our lovely team of banner holders... Um, get up from their seats, lift up a massive banner um, with Green New Deal Haringey on it, um, wherever, you, wherever you are. Um, probably got some people chucking some more leaflets just in case. Um, <laughs> and you stand there and you wait with your banner and you'll probably chuck a few chants in because everyone likes to chant. Um, <laughs> And they hopefully will answer your question. And you get to the people in your constituency and you get to people in your area and that is an action. That's campaigning. And that's how you get into people's heads. That's how you get into your candidates' heads. That's how you say to people, we're going to hold you to account. So we're not going to do that comfortably. We're not going to let you sit back and, and do so in peace. We're going to hold you to account because that's our job as your constituents. That's our job as people over whom you preside. Uh, and who you represent and who you make decisions for. And we will force you to make a pledge on this climate crisis. We will force you to stand to it. And so I'd, that's our plan. I hope everyone's happy with that. 
next election time, uh, you know, if you need a few ideas, you, you know how to put that together. Um, and I think, you know, that's what, six people who spoke then, six people who had ideas, your six neighbours who want to do it, put hustings on, your six people who can paint a banner and can print leaflets, and suddenly you've got your entire constituency hanging on to your every word. Um, so a big round of applause, and that's your scenario solved. Excellent. Um, <laughs> let's move on to the, to the next scenario. I'm looking forward to, to hearing what's next. Cool. So um, our campaign is similar to one which is going on here, which I mentioned, which is um, about cleaners. So you discover that the cleaners in your workplace or your school or university aren't being paid properly. They aren't being given uh, proper conditions or proper equipment to do their jobs. Um, they aren't being uh, given conditions which are equal to other staff. Uh, they don't receive proper overtime pay. They're being treated, they're essentially being discriminated against. Um, what are the starting points of this kind of campaign? How are you going to, number one, find out the information on the way that cleaners are treated? It's not always easy to find out this kind of thing. How are you going to build a connection between yourselves and the people, that, this group that you're working with and the cleaners? How are you going to escalate your campaign? Where are you going to start? Who are you going to ask those questions? And what do you think the campaign is going to build up to? How, do you th how far do you think the campaign is going to have to go to actually achieve its demands? So what kind of things do we think we would start off with? Um, firstly, when I'm building my team, to start with, I'm going to make sure I choose people at least two, three people that are likeable and confident and are respectable to the cleaners and like are likeable so the cleaners would like them, they can build a relationship with the cleaners so the cleaners can trust them and then start talking to them about the problems. So that's how they can start building up their case against the school or the institution. Mm. The first plan. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> So you need to build a team that's personable, that the cleaners are going to be able to relate to, because the first thing you need to do is build a relationship with the cleaners. That's step one. So if you don't have any sort of understanding of what the cleaners are going through, a way to connect with them, a way to speak to them, obviously there's nothing you can do, because the campaign isn't for you, it's for them. And so they need to be at the centre of it. So the kind of way I tend to think about this kind of thing is like building... Um, relationships of accountability so you need to know that at every single point whenever you make a decision the people that are affected by that decision will be there to hold you to account you can't just um, do whatever you want to do and then kind of say oh yeah I was thinking about them but that's fine you need to actively build those kind of channels of people who um, are trustworthy and are um, confident and able to kind of build those relationships and open and honest about what they're doing so that um, they're always there to say, you know what, well, when you said that thing, when you wrote that on that leaflet, I didn't actually like that, I didn't reflect what I was doing. Or um, when you spoke to X person in that way about what I was going through, actually that wasn't quite correct, that didn't really reflect what my experience was. So just making sure that from the start you build that relationship um, and you also demonstrate to the management or whoever you're fighting against that um, you have that relationship there, um, that they, you know 
um, that you will ho- that they so that they know that you will hold management to account. So kind of showing people at the top that, you know, we're talking, like, we know what's going on. Like, it's not just that you can silo these groups and keep them all separate. Relationships are being built here and they're going to come for you soon. So where would you move from when you've got that kind of relationship, which is enabling you to get that communication and um, kind of show management that you're on their case? Well, obviously, you want a bit of a plan, so not to escalate immediately, but try and approach it constructively by perhaps going to see the the head of the institution, perhaps with the the cleaner representative, if there is a head of the cleaners or whatever, and and try and do it before kind of escalating it and see if there is a way to reach a a sort of negotiated agreement Mm -hmm. first. Yeah, so you need to start by with a kind of um, campaign strategy. So you need to start not by just saying, we're going to go on strike tomorrow, but saying, how are we going to build up to a point where we might do that? So you might start off with a petition, a letter, that kind of thing, knowing that if that doesn't work, more might come further down the line. So kind of putting those things in place and putting that um, kind of system of escalation in place so you're constantly escalating actions and you're constantly going up and up and up and getting more shocking and whatever. So, cool. Um, you first and then you. So, um, on, on a linked point as well, um, find your tribe or find your allies. So, I'm sure this is not something that's only affecting this institution. So, there might be other institutions having a similar um, issue. There might be other groups campaigning in those areas. Or you might have like institutions like you know, the National Living Wage Foundation and things like that who are actively working on this issue. So, again, find your tribe and find like-minded people who are, who are your allies. And perhaps Perhaps um, group together so you have a stronger, united kind of bargaining voice? A hundred percent. So building channels of like solidarity and ways that you and people that you can learn from and draw from. So if I'm running a campaign, I might not be aware that, you know, at the university down the road, there was a campaign run there a few years ago, which was successful. So kind of looking at, OK, who's really done this before? Who might be interested in, be, in joining with me now? Um, how can I learn from them, how can I work with them, and how can we build kind of channels of solidarity? And not just with, say, other groups that are doing the same thing, but also maybe groups that are doing sort of similar things in the same place as you that might also be interested. So not necessarily just groups that are working on um, cleaners, like just with cleaners in a different university across the road, but also people in your university who might be interested in just general social justice or issues and things like that. Um, and kind of thinking, okay, would they be interested in supporting us? Could we go to some of their meetings, work together? That kind of thing. So that is definitely incredibly important. And also, I would say, I would also put it in the kind of context of understanding um, the systems of power. So sometimes you make a chart, you might start a campaign by making a chart and saying, okay, who are the different actors that have power in the situation? And you would rank them from how much power they have and how close they are to your position. So you might put um, the university down the road somewhere on that chart in terms of um, how much they can help you, how much they can come to your protests. And you might put, and they're obviously closely ideologically aligned with you, you might put management on that um, chart because they have a lot of power and they might be very, very far from you. And so that kind of helps you to understand 
who you're trying to target at every single point, who your campaign is actually against, who it's with, who you're going to be working with in this process and understanding who the key actors are. So... Yeah, I, th I think um, on your team you would want to make sure that you had somebody who um, really understood the employment law of the, wherever the jurisdiction was that you were doing the campaign because often these types of workers are very vulnerable. Um, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to put them at risk uh, before you knew sort of what, what their rights were. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, so this is definitely the kind of campaign where you really want to work with like unions, you want to work with um, people that have experience in this area, not just kind of, uh, I guess, you never want to make assumptions. You want to make sure that you have the information you can, and that means understanding the cleaners, understanding the law, understanding all these different groups that have really done really incredible work and reaching out to them and working with them. Hi, I think <clears throat> more so I've got a question about this type of action. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I study at a, like, a very strict school, so like where there's like a clear power hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if um, me and a lot of the students didn't agree with some of the things the school were doing, and we tried to question that, then we'd be punished. Or if parents tried to question that, they'd just be hit with, okay, why does your student still go to this school? Mm. In the same sense, um, I feel like with a lot of people who work, um, the issue is like, okay, I need to provide for my family. What if I get fired? And also for um, adding on to what the young man will say, yeah, what the man will <laughs> 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 We're all young at heart, guys. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, adding, on what to, adding on to what the man was saying, um, these are very vulnerable workers as well. You don't want to put them in a position where they can lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. So I feel like um, those are all factors that play into whether you want to do the action in the first place or not. So I was just going to ask, how would you overcome these issues? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. So the way I would kind of deal with that is by looking at the escalation thing. So you, there's strength in numbers. So what you want to do is you want to, I guess, get as many people on board as possible at the beginning before you do something which could get you in, like, massive trouble. So that kind of means starting off small with, like, le I don't know, actually, I don't want to say stuff because maybe someone else will say it, but, like, starting off small and then generally moving up and up and up once you've got a massive amount of people. Because if you say, okay, um, we've got the law on our side, we've got these employment lawyers, we know what we're doing, we know our rights, always know your rights in every single situation, um, and we know what we're doing, we know that we're allowed to do X, Y, Z, um, and we say we've got 70% of cleaners on side. Suddenly, those cleaners are so much less vulnerable than if there's just one cleaner trying to do something by themselves. If you have 100 students, it's much harder to say, okay, we're going to expel 100 students than to say we're going to expel one student. So it's about starting off in like a small way, I would say. I think the best way to kind of combat that is by saying, A, we know what we're allowed to do and we will fight you. We know what our rights are. We know what, we're, what is acceptable and we're not going to let you kind of scare us into submission. Saying number two, we have the facts on our side. So getting that information from cleaners, knowing exactly what the situation is before you start off. And then saying, three, we're going to build as many, a coalition of as many people as possible. Saying we've reached out to X group, this group. We've got the attention of this newspaper, that newspaper. We've got, um, you know, all these people that you are going to have to fight. Isn't it just easier to pay them an extra three pounds than expel all of us? So kind of saying all that, kind of getting those three things, I think, can be quite helpful to dealing with those issues of, like, people trying to scare you into not doing stuff.
I was going to say something about what she was saying as well. When I think a very important thing is, that like I said before, when you're building your team, everyone has their own individual strengths. So you have to build a team. So, for example, with the employment law, you build like a, you build people, you bring people into your team that are intellectual can look into the law, but then you also need likable people. So you can all be like-minded, mm. but to build the numbers, you need to get people to become like-minded like you. Mm -hmm. So you need people that can go out in the institution. So like, say you're in a school, you've got other school school friends that don't know what you're talking about. They need to be able to show them. So that maybe like illustrations. I think illustrations are powerful because mm. like you see something, you're like, oh, like that's a problem. So like someone that can build an illustration to show how badly the um, cleans are being treated. Mm. So that's going to get more people on your side. So you can build strength, like you said, strength in numbers. That's and 100%, thing. yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You two at the front. Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm a, as a journalism student, I think I would reach out uh, as a way from media because I feel like uh, so it depends really on a lot of people, ordinary people, if they want to support the official, the government official. Um, so how, like, but a lot of people don't know the real situation of the cleaners. So what I was thinking is like, we could spend more energy and time on social media. So trying to um, make videos and interviews about what, the daily life it's like for cleaners and the importance of them so what if without them the world will be like it will definitely in fact uh, um, affect normal people's life so that we can like, put them see less on twitter because that's very political like it's mostly used by a lot of uh, officials here and we can talk along those people's names and if they don't respond to that definitely normal people will come to react and i don't think they will you know, they will not um, care about that because they will like that will reduce their popularity. Yeah, a hundred percent. Having that kind of having a strategy of reaching out to the people you know, reaching out to your friends, reaching out to people in your community, and also having like a wider media strategy simultaneously is so important. Yeah. Um Maybe it's because I didn't fully. If I misunderstand the premise of your scenario, are the management or the decision makers? fully against or just unaware of those conditions? Because one component that we could potentially capitalize, which would prevent those putting those people at risk, would be identifying the synergies or rather than enlightening them of that problem, which would mean showing the potential. So if they're not able to, don't have the appropriate tools or they're not paid fairly, for example, and that company is trying to maybe be, or that school is trying to be seen as ethical or be seen as, I don't know, using sources, if, I don't know, whatever they're trying to do. But seeing, linking with their agenda in some ways and making sure that that illustration shows that. So for example, use an image that is powerful. Like one idea that I had, there's this bird specifically called plover. And this bird cleans the teeth of the crocodiles and alligator. Now that creates a really powerful synergy because the crocodile cannot survive without a bird. So it respects the bird in some ways mm -hmm. and the bird gets food. So in some ways it's using a powerful image to show the synergy. So rather than being confrontational, which might, some of the management might be confrontational, but try to influence the ones that might be more willing to bend. Yeah, so this is what you identify in your um, kind of as you escalate. So if 
management is receptive, a few leaflets would do the job. But if not, then obviously you have to go further and further and further. So what might the further look like? You in the middle. Yeah, so it, it's important to show solidarity within you know, the, all of it, the, the institution that is in, uh, <clears throat> because management always tries to sort of divide and rule. And so, you know, a possible uh, stunt is, is to show that, uh, I mean, let's say if the institution is uh, the lessee, uh, that, uh, you know, all the staff cares about the, uh, the cleaners. Uh, and so they can swap. They can do a, like a day. They can do an action of swapping. So the professors go and clean, and the um, and the cleaners go and teach. We had actually not thought about that in our campaign, and you might see that come and see, because that sounds great. So as you escalate, you do stunts. We all love stunts. Stunts, strikes, things like this. Like. That's where the campaign is leading. So obviously I have to wrap this up because you just had so many brilliant ideas that we could just go on forever. But um, as you can see, actually, you know, you wanted to speak, didn't you? Did you have a point? Can we just hear, did you have a point earlier? Can we just hear from you and then I'll wrap up. I wanted to say that, we, uh, that it would be best to have a, peti have a petition to show that uh, if you can get you know, even 200 people to, to sign it, uh, and then you, know, you can show that other people care about this issue. You know, it'll boost morale, morale, morale. Uh, and it'll also show to management, if you do have to confront them, that the people in their school care, uh, care about this thing, mm -hmm. and it can encourage more people to get involved. Brilliant. So our plan is we are going to build a team of people with a diverse skill set. We've got people that are personable, confident, can build a relationship with the cleaners. We've got the cleaners themselves so that we can make sure we're always accountable to them. We've got an understanding of the power dynamics that are going on in the institution and, we've, and also outside. We've got people from outside that we can build solidarity with and a solidarity with other movements. We've got an understanding of the law and we know our rights. And then we've got a plan of escalation, moving from things like petitions and letters and these sorts of things and leaflets with powerful illustrations and messages. And we're going to move in a, in a, um, in an, in a process of escalation to stunts and strikes where we show the realities of the lives of the cleaners themselves. And this is... This happens simultaneously to a media strategy, which is making sure that our message is getting out there to the wider world and to people outside. So, guys, you've just, you know, you've built a campaign right there. Like, that is literally exactly what it looks like. That's exactly what these campaigns look like. And as I was already said, there are examples of campaigns like this which are successful, and that is the process that they go in. So, incredible. Thank you. We've also got, got us some ideas for our campaign, which I really do appreciate. <laughs> Um, and you should keep an eye out for them. And if you want stunts about cleaners, um, you might see some of them this evening. So there you go. Thank you.
Still. Right, moving swiftly oh, on. Yeah, I know there were a few a few people didn't get a chance to contribute there, but um, you've got a whole other scenario coming right now. Mm. Over to you. Let's go. So I I was gonna do I was gonna do one which I had a, my mind on, but it was very similar to the likes of here. And I think what would be interesting is if we shake it up a little bit and do a different form of campaigning, a sort of campaign which I'm concentrating much more on in terms of skill set. Um, and that's using political frameworks. So we've used lots of grassroots movements, and that's really important, especially for, for local issues. What I was going to do is stuff like saving local youth centres and that sort of stuff, which is um, something I'm really passionate about. But let's talk about legislative implications, and let's try and change the law. Okay, let's go for this. We are trying to make it compulsory for every decision that is made, um, which affects our futures, um, to guarantee that when going through the legislative process, that they encourage and engage young people throughout the process, right? So that would involve stuff like throughout the Brexit negotiations, right? Anything which would involve our, uh, impact our futures, we have to be consulted. We want the law to do that, okay? We want there to be a safety net to ensure that our voices are heard within. Now, there are so many questions here, right? You're just one individual. You're just one individual who wants to change this law. Okay, get this law through the Houses of Parliament. Now, that's not an easy task, but what I want to try and prove is that you can do it, okay? Because there have been a few cases, such as upskirting, um, tampon tax, the likes, which have all moved forward just from a single individual going, I want to change the law, without any, any um, engagement, prior engagement with Parliament. So that's what we want to do. We want to make sure that every single piece of legislation that impacts our futures, okay, we get consulted on, right? Young people get consulted on. So, a few things to ask. Um, now, whenever I work with a campaign, whether it's a small charity or whether it's the likes of, when I'm consulting the likes of UNICEF or BAFTA um, um, or even bigger ones like BBC, whenever I'm asked to come in and ask, you know, how to, how to look at their campaigns, we start with this. We start with, A, what do you have? Right? What do you have at your disposal? Second of all, where do you want to go? And then we look at where, 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 how do you get there? But most importantly, there was a study by a professor at the University of Chicago, which I've looked at, and um, it's really impressive. And it looks at when do campaigns succeed? But not just campaigns, when do corporations succeed? When do the biggest movements and, and biggest act, things on in the, in the planet succeed? And he boiled it down to this. He boiled it down to everything that succeeds, to a great extent, has a why. They're able to answer why they're doing what they're doing. Look at Apple. They know why they're doing it, all right? Look at the biggest campaigns in history. They know why. So let's look at our situation, okay? We want to make sure we're in the room whilst decisions are being made, okay? Why do we want that? Does anyone, can anyone think why we'd want that? Yeah. Representation. Representation. Why, why do we need representation? Aren't they representing our views anyway? That we are their constituents. Because someone that's in a different generation to me, they'll never be able to see the world the same way I can see it. Literally. So this is not just Great Britain for, like, for example, for middle-aged people or for working-aged people. It's, 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 um, it's Britain. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's Britain for all of us, minorities, young people included. So that's why we all deserve a seat at the table. Yeah, fantastic. So you literally have... Um, just yourself, you have a why, you have a why now, and that's really important. It's important because when, it, when things get tough, right, you did the study and it showed that the people who don't have a why, a reason for what they're doing, they're the first to go. You know, if you don't have a reason for doing what you're doing, 
you're gonna you know you're gonna fall at the first hurdle so we've got we've got the drive we've got determination we've got a, a, a purpose for what we're doing um and we we know directly why so second thing if you are trying to get something past the department right you're gonna need a certain help from a certain individual who can do that who is it who would who would we need to get in touch with I was thinking that you need to do research on MPs or people, yeah. powerful people in Parliament that mm-hmm. have similar ideas yeah. or you think would agree with you. For example, I was actually in a talk a few days ago. David Lammy was there, mm-hmm. and I could he I could relate to what he's saying. Exactly. Yeah. And he's an MP for Tottenham. Mm-hmm. So what I would do is I'm looking for I'm researching all the MPs I could think of, and then I'm just emailing them I'm just, keep, I'm just going to email all of them until mm. one of them replies and I want to get one of them to reply mm. if they do then we can have a conversation about mm-hmm. what steps I would need to take yeah. how he could help me in my process of making this change type of thing. Yeah. fantastic I mean that's what we did that's what we did as an organisation um, we again didn't have any political contacts but we looked at we followed the news and we could see which MPs would engage with us now they're not all just going to be a member of one party um, there are plenty of people from across parties who who want to engage with young people. And so certainly, you know, you've got to look at what, what MPs, not just MPs, you know, you can look at the House of Lords and what I'll drop at the end. I'll drop it now. This is what we're trying to do. So it's a real life situation and we're trying to get it through with Lord Bird. Um, and Lord Bird has been absolutely incredible with it all. Um, so we try and find MPs, right? Now, you know, you, you do have the option here of, of building your own team. Now, I'd highly recommend that. We've all talked about the, the importance of teamwork. But again, you know, you look at the Gina Martins who passed the upskirting bill, right? She she had, you know, a few people who really helped out in terms of media and PR and that sort of stuff, which is really important. Um, but she drove that. As, you know, she had a power, She was a powerhouse. She really got that through. Um, and so it really does show that, you know, you as an individual can hopefully get something passed. So let's, let's keep going d- down this line. Now, you found an MP. You found an MP who's really winning, but he or she comes up to you and says, okay, there are a lot of different barriers here, right? First of all, my party might not actually want me to to submit this into the Houses of Parliament, right? Um, The whips aren't a huge fan. I don't really have much of a say in what we can introduce through Parliament. Um, And also the media. The media aren't, you know, there's not enough public public opinion in favour of this. What do we do now? You know, we, it's just us. We've got a member of parliament who's potentially on board, right? How do we make sure that A, the party really wants to drive this through as well, and B, and they're both linked, the public perception really drives it forward as well. How can we do that, those two things? Yeah. yeah I was going to say, so you might want to look at um, non-partisan um, individuals, so you, or you might look at pressure groups, inside yeah, of pressure groups, because yeah. they wouldn't be tied back by parties. Or even in a House of Lords, you might have cross benches that might be able to help you. Yeah. So yeah, if you want to look outside of party limits, then you can look at non-partisan individuals in Parliament. Or yeah, located. Okay, Brilliant. So the key here, and you know, I wrote an article in the Mirror on this because it was so important. It's not highlighted enough. Is that the the biggest powerhouses in terms of youth engagement are youth organisations, not MPs, not you know government organ, not government initiatives. They're youth organisations. So you've got the British Youth Council, you've got UK Youth, you've got Youth Parliament, you know uh, Youth Politics. I got my own organisation's name wrong. Uh, youth Politics. You've got so many different youth organisations there who are so ready to to get hold. So you're completely right. Nonpartisan organisations will be a huge asset, and they'll have a network of thousands of young people, um, millions of young people they can tap into NCS and the likes. Um, so that's where you can really start mobilising um, the public and young people. Because the most important thing for this is that you've got to get young people at the heart of it. 
what Gina Martin and what other activists do is they get people to tell stories if they're affected by it. And that is so much more powerful than, for example, an, old, an older man, you know, presenting this bill and saying, this is why we need it. You know, that's great, right? But if you have someone saying, this happened to me, um, this is why I want it through, you're going to change the public's opinion much more. So youth organisations are a brilliant, brilliant asset. Uh, yeah, Lee. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm just going to add to that, like building the synergy. There's a lot of momentum and, and interest at the moment. The fact that we don't have really representative politics yeah. and, and what can we do to, you know, uh, to, to change that. And I think there's Make Votes Matter, there's Electoral Reform Society. So in a way, kind of being part of that whole narrative where people want to engage the public more in sort of some participatory uh, communications about where our democracy is going to go and how to make it more representative, also at the community level. If you can join that kind of bandwagon in a way yeah. and carve your niche within it, you, you, you'll find yourself in the middle of a lot of very interesting initiatives. Yeah. Um, and then, and then I'm sure they'll be receptive to giving your particular initiative about youth a, a voice within that. So, for example, this summer there are a lot of democracy groups trying to create a citizen festival yeah. in the summer, and and I'm 100% sure if you're not already connected that they would want to make sure that young people have a stronger voice in our politics. For sure, um, and I mean this is where you really got to. You know, one of my biggest pieces of advice is make sure you have allies in the area. So, again, even just looking at this panel, Noga and myself have known each other for a while and we help each other out with events, we help each other out with opportunities, but also the youth organisations out there and different MPs, you know, you've got to keep... Contacts aren't just about a phone number. They're a relationship that you go to them when you need help, but they'll come to you. It's a, you know, it's, it's a bipartisan thing, which and which is so useful. Now, that will come in use, particularly it did with us, when, um, for example, if you want a bill passed, you know, we've... How do you write a bill? You know, again, I'm 18. Right? I, I'm not going to be able to just whip up a bill in my spare time. Um, you really do need the input of people who are really sympathetic to the cause. And that's where the MPs come involved. That's where the organisations and the allies come involved. Um, so really, reaching out to people who you know are going to be sympathetic goes back to the first point. is the first key step. Um, and really do your research into that. That's what all the activists who have driven through bills through Parliament, which have affected the nation, started out with. It's an individual looking um, at sympathetic causes. So we've now changed public perception. At least there's a, there's a media impact. Now, if I had more time, I'd go into depth about how you write the likes of press reports. Well, that just a brief thing very quickly. Stick to three key points, right? If you have... If you're on Sky News and you have like five, you know, actually not even that, you might have 20 seconds, 30 seconds just to push through your ideas, you stick to three points, right? You can stick to what it is you're trying to do, why you're trying to do it, and how you're doing it, okay? Those are normally the three I stick to, but if there are other three things you want to do, do that, but just stick to three and just keep repeating them. You saw in the election time, right? You saw that these politicians come out with just repeating slogans, right? Unfortunately, right, if you've only got 20 seconds, you do have to do that, but make sure it's meaningful and powerful and try and get people who are affected directly by what's happening at the forefront of those media campaigns. So that's a very brief, very brief thing. So you change public perception. You've now got the MP support, right? Now you've hopefully, won't go into depth about how you do this because we don't have enough time, but you've hopefully changed the party opinion, which means that they are now either introducing it in their manifesto, which is what Labour are doing with the likes of Vosa 16, because there's so much grassroots pressure internally within the party. Um, but also you've got the MPs, multiple MP support. Now hopefully there are two things which could happen. Private members' bill, right? Let's presume it's the opposition. Private members' bill, an MP can get, get their bill through. Fingers crossed it works out. That's what we're doing with the Future Generations Bill with uh, Lord Bird. Look it up. It's hopefully going to be brilliant. We'll see. Um, 
then also hopefully they might win the election and push through the manifesto, or the government might close steal it, right? If there's enough public support, they might give it a go. That's, that's happened. We think uh, it's going to come up with the tampon tax with uh, the current chancellor. You know, he's hopefully going to include it within the budget. Um, so if it's a popular idea, it'll be close deal. So there you go. You're an individual. You've come up with an idea and you've hopefully passed it through parliament. Easy as that. <laughs> okay, we'll have to wrap that scenario up there. <laughs> Give yourselves a massive round of applause as well. <laughs> I think we only have a little bit of time left, but maybe we'll, we'll take some very quick-fire questions, please, from the audience uh, in, in general. So there's one, two, three, and I think that might be it. So we'll start at the front and work our way back. <laughs> With the microphone, please. <laughs> You talked about stunts and about uh, strikes and stuff like that, but uh, as a parent and maybe young people would be worried about, you know, what police would do when you do a stunt and uh, what kind of health and safety measures are you taking in order to, to ensure the safety of young people. So. Okay, we'll, we'll take all of the questions and then you'll have a chance to respond. Thanks. Is that the back there? Um, this question's for Lola, I think, because when you were introduced, um, you said that you're working to decolonize the environmental movement. And I don't want to sound naive, but I would like to know why it needs decolonizing. And then final question, just one row in front. Um, so this question was based on the last scenario that we did. Um, so we all might know about the Dobbs Amendment, which was to... Um, um, which was to make sure that we give a home to uh, 10,000 unaccompanied um, young refugees. But then that eventually got through everything. But then when the Brexit bill was being pushed through, that got eliminated. And, and as someone who was working within that kind of work and campaigning for the Dubs Amendment, it was quite a big shock. It was kind of a big kind of slap in the face when, when you go through everything, you push through everything, you get public perception, you get all of those things, and ultimately the powers can then turn back and say, we're not going to do it. How do you then pick yourself up and say, you know what, I'm going to get back on with it when it, is, when it feels like, you know, no matter what you do, no matter how many milestones you reach and how many boxes you take, ultimately the powers can just turn at any point and say, we're not going to do it. Okay, thank you for those questions, and I'll, I'm going to ask you to fairly quick-fire responses. I know that's difficult. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I think I'll take uh, your question on kind of health and safety and uh, kind of police responses, um, particularly when you're organising a demonstration, which is what I've kind of spent the last year doing. And Lola mentioned this. One of the most important things to possibly happen is is you have to know your rights. And this is kind of outside the demonstration world. This is uh, a reality for the more vulnerable people in our society who are forced to knowing their rights. So actually refusing to kind of know your rights at a demonstration, what you're legally or not legally allowed to do, what uh, ways you can keep yourself safe around police officers who may respond in an aggressive, unprovoked way, is, um, is saying, I recognise that, you know, I may have privilege in this space, and as a result, in order to stand in solidarity with um, particularly more vulnerable minorities, um, I'm going to learn my rights and I'm going to educate other people on our rights. I know that um, I've drilled this into my little brother who can probably give you a, a legal knowledge breakdown at any point. Um, but it, it is one of those things where particularly around demonstrations, we know uh, that for many reasons, um, police officers, particularly in London, are extraordinarily aggressive and that's not really a trend that's ever changed. Um, and so when you go on a demonstration, you make sure that kids know their rights, you make sure that they know how to 
uh, talk or not talk to police officers. You make sure that uh, kids know, okay, where is my, where is the health and safety spot? At every strike, we have a well-being area. We have a first aid team uh, who, again, all young people, but who are all extraordinarily well-trained. Uh, we have a team of also young stewards uh, who are also well-trained and who know, okay, I see a lost kid, I see someone in distress, what do I do, where do I go, how do I help, where's our well-being area, where do we send people back to, how do we keep people safe? These are questions that you and your team have to take on before every strike, before every campaign. What are my rights? What are the people's rights? What laws am I breaking? Uh, what laws do I want to break? What laws do I want changed? These are, they're, they're, not, they're not just a, a side-on. These are fundamental to running campaign. They're the first thing you should learn. And that will be different, of course, for every campaign, every action, every demonstration that you organise. But the information is available everywhere. It's available online. It's available at credible organisations like Green and Black Cross. It's available even on like gov.uk pages. It will break down the law right there. And you can take your own interpretation of that and say, well, this is what I want to do based around that. And that is one of the most important things in organising from kind of the grassroots to the global level. Okay, so... Um, explaining decolonisation in a very short period of time is difficult, <laughs> but I will try. Um, so the environmental movement, uh, the climate movement needs decolonisation because um, colonisation is central to the causes of the climate crisis. So as I've already said, um, the Green New Deal is a form of policy proposal which um, basically says that we can't just tackle climate in, as an isolated issue, we have to tackle it as part of a wider social framework which has led us to this place and um, a way of organising society which has led us to the climate crisis. So the, um, the way that essentially colonisation has led us to this place is um, we can see that our planet has our way of constructing society for hundreds of years has been about um, exploiting essentially other countries for their resources, um, for systems. We've had these systems for hundreds of years of extraction um, or of essentially treating profit, um, again, profit above people, not just in the sense of one country, but as a sense of the entire world. Um, and these systems have not disappeared. These systems still exist in new forms and they're constantly mutating. And the reason why we need to um, decolonise the environmental movement is because we need to understand these when we're organising. We need to understand that um, the reason why we're in this crisis isn't just because, um, you know, some people didn't realise that the climate was dying or whatever. It's that they knew the science and they decided to ignore it because they thought they had, other, they had priorities above the well-being of our planet. Um, and those, that kind of thinking has come into so many systems that we've seen across the world and it continues and it continues today. So um, that's why I think decolonisation is so important. I would also say that, you know, anti-racism is so important that we need to think about, you know, um, who is being impacted the most by the climate crisis. It is those who have always suffered under all of these systems of colonisation and of oppression. And so we need to make sure that those people are being lifted up the most. Um, that just feels like common sense to me and I wish it did to, you know, the people that run, <laughs> run the world. Um, so yeah, it's about really breaking down those systems of um, looking at who has power and who doesn't and trying to give the people that don't have power more power. The last question, like the Dubs Amendment, I was gutted as well. I think a lot of people in this room would be gutted and I think it's an example that you're not going to win them all. You're really not going to win them all. And don't go into this if you're after a 100% success rate, because you're not going to get it. Um, first, I'm going to use, you know, who's, I think, really inspiring in this respect for, I call it campaign stamina, because you need it, um, is Elizabeth Warren, who dropped out of the race. Um, but when asked, you know, about the fight for a female president, 
and all the pinky promises she gave to the little little girls when going around the country that you know she could be the next female president she just said you gotta keep punching those walls down um and you know what it's 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 gut-wrenching but if you don't have hope if you really don't have hope then what's the point um what's the point and you know we always say this what what is an activist is it someone who just goes you know goes on the streets anyone can go on the streets or is it someone who looks at something looks at an injustice and is the first person at the front of the queue to pick up the pick up the campaign posters to organize to campaign to lobby to wake up every morning and go that's an injustice you want to change that's what an activist is yeah so you know you're not going to you're not going to win them all but um with the dubs amendment specifically you do have public perception you do have this is it i always say when, when you say british public are scared of socialism now they're not you know if you believe in the nhs you're a social you've got a socialist principle within you if you look at a kid crying you know who's looking for a home if you're not human if you don't if you're not upset um now the big thing there is the media perception and the british media are tragic we all know that right they are just absolutely appalling with this with this issue you're right completely um but you know you get the voters out and you keep fighting and if you don't then you know the the big argument is this um gordon brown came here and he said this he said that oh no it's it was the other professor professor at new york university and he said um if no one fights it you're going to lose there's no there's no even there's not even a question if you don't fight it you're going to lose um so is it is it worth giving it a shot and with the dubs amendment it is but in all respects you're going to get knocked down you got to pick yourself back up again I think that's an absolutely fantastic point to finish on. Um Noga, Lola, Daniel, it has been a real pleasure to be sat alongside you on this I think quite a truly extraordinary panel. Um thank you so much and thank you as well. You all contributed. Um give yourselves a round of applause, give our panel a round of applause.